This is by far the biggest project I'd done. Built it through 2006 and opened in late 2006. And I was in the self-storage business. What was going on in the community around there that made you think that was a good area for storage? And then what happened over the next few years? So I thought, it's going to be a flam dunk. We built it 2006 and 2007. We're just starting to lease up. Of course, 2008. Eric Hemingway is a self-storage investor who specializes in converting old empty buildings into climate-controlled self-storage. He's the co-founder of Nomad Capital, and today he's sharing his incredible journey from a three-year sailing adventure around the Mediterranean to building a successful self-storage empire with his son, Levi. You get back into the storage business 10 years later in North Carolina. What was your next facility? We're sitting there having a beer and looking at across the street, and there's this big brick, ugly building with no windows in it. I saw that would be perfect for storage. You talk about a lot is that risk is a muscle. What is passive income? And people get into short-term rentals and Airbnbs or what have you, or single family rentals. What is truly passive, right? To me, in my mind, truly passive is. If you could do us a favor and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps grow our reach and it makes a huge difference in the quality of guests that we're able to bring to you. Welcome to the Truly Passive Income Podcast. I'm Neil. And I'm Click. Our guest today, as we said, is Mr. Eric Hemingway. Eric, welcome to the Truly Passive Income Podcast. Thank you, Neil. Gentlemen, how are we? Very well. Morning. Give us a quick rundown of your background and how you got into the self-storage business. Okay, sure. Yeah, so I've been in construction for a long time, 25, too long. Let's just put it that way. Was doing construction in Arizona, spec, custom. And uh, 2005, yes, found a piece of property. I'd heard from a few people like, you have to get into self-storage. Like it's a cash cow and it's great. And I'm like, I have no idea anything about the self-storage business. Found a piece of property right where I lived. I passed it every day. It was the residential farm yeah. on a highway and had to rezone a commercial. Just did a long due diligence period. Not really sure what I was getting kicked around like a football at the county and what it took to rezone it to commercial. Thankfully, I had some very patient sellers who waited through that process with me. But yeah, I had done some commercial construction before that, but this is by far the biggest project I'd done. Yeah, built it through 2006 and opened in late 2006, our first facility, and I was in the self-storage business. So what did that re-entitlement look like for converting that from a residential farm property to a commercial? How long? process. It was probably six months or so, six or seven months. I had to have some preliminary drawings, had to go to the county and apply. And it was even harder than just residential to commercial because storage was, I don't remember all the details, but B2 was like general commercial and B1 was storage. So it was a little more stringent. And they, one of the requirements was I submitted a plot plan with what I was proposing to do. And then they came back with revision saying, Hey, we don't want to drive down the highway and just look for storage units. Um, we want you to put a commercial building as a buffer between the highway and the storage unit. So back to the drawing board and we ended up putting a 5,000 square foot building there. So a little bit of back and forth there. Then I had to go in front of the planning and zoning commission and then the county, let's call it the county council for final approval. And there was just a lot of, I call miracles along the way that just things that should not have happened, happened. And I was at the final meeting. It was three commissioners that were yes or no. And you had to get a majority, right? There was a, uh, another project, maybe 15 miles down the road. 
But one thing I was really counting on is what they call a deceleration lane. So I had to actually put another lane on the highway. It's a six lane highway and off of the highway to turn into my property. Right. And so I was counting on that and had to go through Arizona department of transportation and all that process, finally get to the county. And I was up for, I gave him my spiel, said American, I want to do storage. And initially they said no. And all three of them said, no, they said, yeah, we don't think that's a good use. And I was ready to go back to my seat and the attorney for the county piped up and said, gentlemen, I, I urge you to reevaluate because we just gave this hotel 15 miles away, the right to do the deceleration lane for his project. And so we've set a precedent. So I don't think you can not approve this one. And then one of them said, well, I motion we re-vote and then it was unanimous. That one decision, if that attorney hadn't piped up, it would have been game over right there. But that was my first foray into all that. And it was certainly trial by fire. Wow. I never knew that part of the story, Eric. That's amazing. So that was 2006. Market was booming. Everything's going great. It's going to continue going great forever. How'd you choose that location? What was going on in the community around there that made you think that was a good area for storage? And then what happened over the next few years? It was a growing area. It's a suburb, basically. Prescott, Arizona is already a small town, but this is the outskirts, pretty rural area. But there was one project that was getting going, a new residential project. So I thought, okay, great. Those houses are going to help fill this storage. And then as I was going through the whole due diligence process and permitting, two more developments came up on the books. So I thought, this is a piece of cake, but it's going to be a slam dunk. And... So we built it 2006 and 2007, we're just starting to lease up. Of course, 2008, we all know everything fell apart. All three of those developments, one actually started building, the other two never even got off the ground, never got even cleared land. All three went bankrupt. And so we went through an 08 to probably 11, three years or so of very slim margins to get through the recession. Thankfully, we were right at the point where we were about break even, but then it fluctuated over those three years. Like I mentioned, Don, move-ins, 12 people move in, 11 people move out, nine in, 11 out, whatever. So it was just treading water for a while there. And thankfully, we were able to hold on to the property. And once 11 happened and 12, and it just kept getting better year after year. Still own it today. Just finishing up a 30,000 square foot expansion on two acres next door. And we bought a couple of years ago, so the property's doing incredible. And that's really what motivated us to get back into storage. When we relocated to North Carolina in 2016, we got to North Carolina in 2012, but by 2016, we decided like, let's get back into storage earnestly and get serious with it. And so that's what we did. So it was one of the things I love about storage is the ability to build in phases. You had this facility you've figured out the demand, you've built it up, it's leasing up and you get to a point where, hey, we're filling up and it's a lot easier. It's not like an apartment building where once it's full, pretty much the only levers you can pull is to lower your expenses or increase rents. Whereas with storage, it's a lot easier. If you've got a little extra land around it, you can expand, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of times where I wish I would have even phased the first hard. So the first development was 38,000 square feet. And then, like I mentioned, the 5,000 square foot retail building, and we had kicked around 
maybe just doing, so the way it's set up is the buildings are on the perimeter of the property. I would kept thinking maybe we should have just done parking in the middle and then put buildings in there later would have been a lot slower lease up. Had we known how long it was going to take to lease up, then that would have probably been the way to go. But yeah, to your point, that's the great thing about it is you've got land, hopefully, or you can acquire land adjacent and then maybe do boat and RV parking or a lay down yard for contractors. And then you have room to expand into that as the demand calls for it. So you built that open for business in 2008, correct? 2006. 2006. Yeah. So mm-hmm. open for business 2006. You get back into the storage business 10 years later in North Carolina. Yes, sir. Your, what was your next facility? My son and I were working together since we got to North Carolina 2013, doing residential renovations, crawling under old houses. Wilmington has a ton of historic houses. We did a lot of that work for a few years. And then I said, I can't do this anymore. The fun is worn off. We hung the bags up and I said, by now the storage in Arizona is doing great. And we thought, Hey, let's get back into storage because it's doing well. And it doesn't take a lot of our time. Like let's do a few more of these. My wife and I were having a beer at a brewery (laughs) downtown. And we had just made the decision maybe a week or two before, like, let's see what we can find. And we're sitting there having a beer and looking at across the street. And there's this big brick, ugly building with no windows in it. I saw that would be perfect for storage. So I actually got up and walked around the building in the with my phone and looking at them like there's no windows. It's got a loading dock. It's got an office. So I called the realtor the next day, walked it with him and said, I don't see why this wouldn't work. We had already known there was a lot of stuff going on downtown Wilmington. And I thought this might be a perfect segue to get back into the business. Yeah. So we ended up putting it under contract and that was our first storage in North Carolina, city storage North. Oh, yeah. What do you think when you look at building a ground up storage facility, like you did in Arizona versus doing a conversion with the warehouse, what are some of the pros and cons of the different strategies there? And how does that play up in terms of the cost to build it out and the timeline and things like that? Yeah. So ground up, we've got two ground up uh, projects going right now, and we've got several conversions going right now. And just the time is huge and expense, right? The buildings that we're finding these days are old warehouses, old retail, a Kmart or a soda bottling facility or what have you. So much of the work is already done. Now you, you do run into risks of, are you going to find asbestos or lead paint or buried oil tanks or fuel tanks? We had that with a Kmart where they used to have an auto center there and they would recycle oil. So there was a buried oil tank. There's some environmental risks, no question, but you don't, Ground up development is not free of risk either, right? We, what we've noticed is that the time factor is so much faster with a conversion as opposed to a ground up. Ground up projects typically take six months in planning, engineering, civil engineering, structural engineering, permitting. I think our two ground up projects were at least four months into permitting each. And then you're starting from scratch, right? You're just scraping the lot, digging footings inspections and away you go. A, con- a conversion might be a year or just a little bit under and the ground up is easily 18 months to two years. Could be. Wow. How, how are you determining the feasibility of a potential self-storage conversion project? So we have somebody on our team that does underwriting and that he's an acquisitions manager. So he's 
we've got a few subscriptions to different softwares, Radius Plus, CoStar. We follow demographics, obviously. What's the population? What's the income level? What percentage of the population are renters? Because renters typically use more storage than homeowners. What is the proximity to other storage facilities? How much climate controlled is already in the market? How much is non-climate controlled? How full are they? Where are their rates? Are their rates bad market rates or are they lower? Are they full because they're low or are they full because the market's demanding more storage? We do a pretty deep dive into all of that while we're identifying a property. And then if it starts checking a lot of those boxes, then we move ahead with the project. And then we hire a third-party feasibility study as soon as we get the project tied up and double checking our numbers, making sure we he's seeing what we were seeing. Um, and so far that's proven true. The stuff that we find, the feasibility study is really close to what we've come up with as project cost and lease up and what rental rates and unit makes and all those kind of factors. So it's definitely a science. It's not just a throw a dart at the wall and build it, they will come. I think those days in the storage business are over. There's so many markets that are teetering on the point of saturation that you really have to do your homework. And we had a chat with the bank last week and they've done storage in the past and we're thoroughly impressed with our underwriting. And they're like, oh, like we've done storage projects, but nobody has done, has presented us with what you guys just laid out. We're like, look, we've already done all of our homework. We did this, we did that, the building, this, we know it's going to cost this much to convert it. And uh, so that goes a long way, even from a lending standpoint. Yeah. So three key metrics you're probably looking at are population within a one, three, five mile radius. What's the competition? And what's their blended, what sort of rates they're getting, correct? Rates and occupancy. Yeah. We want to see, even if there's one close or quote unquote close, but they're hundred percent, well, they're really not, they're not really a competition anymore because they're full unless things radically change. But any, anybody else that's going to try to rent in that area, they're full. So we're going to be the only other option. So I'm, I don't have a problem going close to another editor because in my mind, it's really not competing. Now, if two sites are starting out both empty, then that's, there's a risk there. Obviously, you can get into a price war of who's going to fill up first. But so that's the stuff we check. Well, in the, nationally, they say the market stability in storage is considered to be about seven and a half square feet of storage per capita. That's what they mm-hmm. call market equilibrium. That's, you hear that a lot if you play in the storage circles. But in our experience, and, I, and it, probably your experience as well, is that it's very market dependent. You can have a, a market that has 10 square feet per capita, but everybody's full. Right. Yeah. I think if you follow the trends, you'll see that number has been climbing. More people are using storage than ever, basically on a per capita basis. And I think we're comfortable at 10 plus, 10, 11 even 12. Some markets are at 15 and most of the sites are still full. So that's something that's fluctuated. I know the seven square foot number was used for a long time, but I think the demographics have changed a lot. And the people that are renting storage and why they're renting has all changed a lot in the past five years, certainly through the pandemic. Interesting fact is that millennials and Gen Z each make up a bigger portion of storage users than Gen X or baby boomers, which is was pretty surprising when we learned that fact 18 months ago or so. And they're not using it where they just put stuff there and 
check on it two or three times a year. They're going several times a month. They're using it really as an extension um, of their house, of their living space. So climate control is a great reason for that. And typically they're renting an apartment, so there's no room for sports equipment or all of the kind of things that people use for storage. Eric, I got a question for you. So it, you obviously, it sounds to me like you've got this really dialed in. There's a lot of science involved, a lot of management. And frankly, it sounds like a very, very active business and business model that you have. Our syndication topic that we discuss a lot of times for the sake of the listeners of the podcast is podcast is called Truly Passive Income. So one thing that we focus on is like, you've got this really active business model going on, but how is there a way for other people to be part of this? And how does this work for people that are not active investors like you are? And you're not getting out of here without a question about what you and your wife did during the years when the market really turned on you in Arizona. And one of the things that you talk about a lot is that risk is a muscle. And you brought that up in a lot of conversations in the way that you've taken risk over the years for yourself some of the developments you've done on your own, some of the adventures that you took with your family when the market dictated that and just listening to the market and what the market's given you and the way that you built and worked that risk muscle. And I would argue one of the things you bring up is the difference in risk versus calculated risk. And eventually taking those steps, being willing to tolerate risk, building those muscles, going on the adventure that you did, ending up in Wilmington, getting back into self-storage, and then talk about how you took that and moved on from a private business owner, taking risks on your own to taking the knowledge that you learned and earned over time and turning that into what is called nomad capital. So briefly, I know that's a lot, but I'd love to hear that quick version of how you get to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. Passive income is the elusive thing that everybody's chasing, right? What is passive income? And people get into short-term rentals and Airbnbs or what have you, or single family rentals, what is really, what is truly passive, right? To me, in my mind, truly passive is 100% no hands off and you still get income from it. Literally mailbox money or today's direct deposit money. You know, we certainly don't are passive. We're not receiving passive income. There's another thing I like to talk about, which is residual income, right? So it's not passive. It's not quite active, like every ounce of work that we do is not tied to our income, but we do have set up a good stream of residual income, which is we already did the active part and there is a stream of income coming that is minimal effort, right? That's where I would call residual income. And then passive income is something that we wanted to, so my son and I are partners. So we thought, well, we could keep going like we are and just do the next deal and maybe do one deal a year or yeah. one every other year. They're bigger deals. But we also realized the value of truly passive income. So I, as you mentioned, we were able to take an a, a extended time abroad. We lived in Costa Rica for a year and a half and then lived on a sailboat for three and a half years all around the Mediterranean, all during the 08 to 12, 13 recession. And we had the storage the whole time. And it wasn't a hundred percent passive. I mean, it was, it involved a few phone calls a month, a few trips over the years. And just talking to my storage manager, I have a fantastic manager there. She basically ran, she did, she ran the property for us while we were gone and that was passive income. And so that's where we thought we want to try to be able to help others achieve that. Right. So we want to 
if they don't want to learn everything there is to know about the storage business, they don't like it. They don't care. They don't want the risk. They don't want to go sign on a multi-million dollar loan and find, figure out how to manage it and lease it and build it and hire a car. It's all, it's a mess, right? <laughs> so we thought maybe there's a section of people that a group out there that would love to get involved in storage as really a passive way. And, and then it allowed us to do more deals because we were finding deals that we couldn't do just for lack of capital. I thought well, there's probably an overlap here where they have the capital, but they don't want to do the business. We know the business and we are willing to take the risk and do the project. So maybe we can all win. And so that's when we started Nomad Capital, a year and a half, I guess. And it's been fantastic. Well, and you bring up, it, it, it sounds like you've been sitting in mine and Clint's meetings. You bring up such a great point about the difference between passive income and residual income. And in order for you to get that residual income that you were getting from that storage facility that you built in 2006, took an enormous amount of work up front and your experience, your knowledge, your own money, and your own risk. And then set, in addition, also setting up the systems in order to keep that going. Uh, or at least the man, you know, hiring the right people to keep that going. And it still required not a lot, but it still required some ongoing effort. And that's where we try to really draw a bright line between passive income and residual income. Yep. Yeah, it is a big difference. Yeah. And residual income in my mind is still a disproportionate factor, your, your activity compared to your income, right? You're working 10 hours a week, but you're getting paid as though you had worked 40 hours a week, for example. So that's residual income. Passive income to me, in my mind, is almost, almost no effort on your part and you're still getting paid like you're working 40 hours, right? So that's active is, of course, you're working 60 hours <laughs> and paid like you're working 40. <laughs> well, listen, let's make no joke about it. Even in passive income, someone's doing the work right? The difference is with residual income, you've preloaded the work and the other people from the outside looking in, it, it looks easy. It looks passive, but the reality is you just did a lot of it ahead of time and laid that groundwork with you in all the deals that you've done on your own. It's a combination of time, experience, and money. And the idea with a syndication is it still takes experience and it still takes time. The idea is somebody can put their money in and as long as you still have those three things, time, experience, and money, you still have opportunity to have success with the right analysis and feasibility study and everything else. So it's still being done. The time is still being spent. The experience is still there and there's still calculated risk, but it is truly passive for the people that just put their money in and they get to pawn that the workload off to the person that knows how to do it. And you and Levi certainly do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we like about it. And to your point about the time, that's another reason we like the conversion so much more than the ground up, because if we are going to syndicate it, we're shaving potentially a year off of that process before from closing the property to renting units, right? And that year, as we know, at 8% interest or eight and a quarter, whatever it's at with the latest height, that's a bitter pill to swallow. You've got a year of interest on a few million bucks at 8%. It makes the deals harder to, to pencil. So if you can shave that year off and find a conversion and be renting in 10 months, well, now all of a sudden, this market is opened up and, and how much quicker are you going to be than the competition that is going to go find a piece of land 
find an architect, find a contractor, were way stealthier and way more nimble to, to pop into a market that we identify and be like, yeah, we'll be, let's, let's do it. We'll be up and running. And, and that difference in the long run is huge for investors. I think it just makes it us able to offer much better returns for them, much more attractive returns. And they, they're actually in on the deal. They're on the LLC. They're, they're a limited partner, but they have full ownership of their shares of the LLC. And we're all in this together. I think that's a great blend of everybody's skills and talents and money. Yeah, you answered my next question. Honestly, I was going to ask, what are some of the differences between Nomad Capital and what you see with most other syndications? And I think you just answered a lot of that. A lot of times, the lion's share of syndications that we see are multifamily apartment complexes that are being bought and renovating, maybe putting in granite countertops, increasing the rent by 15, 20, 30% to increase the net operating income. But it was an apartment complex before. It is an apartment complex after. The valuation formula is still the same. There's only so much you can add there. So I think it, it just, that's really what the difference is in Nomad Capital is the projects themselves, the timeline, and how you push it forward. What does it look like for the investor? Like when you find a deal, you've got something that's coming down the pipeline and you do all the homework on it. From the investor standpoint, what does that process look like? Yeah, typically we get in front of them with a offering memorandum and show them what the returns look like. And as I mentioned, because we do heavy, we focus on heavy value add properties. That's what we, that's the lane we like to stay in. We like storage and we're builders. So that's a good blend of our skills. So that's, we're able to put storage where everybody else has to buy retail is the way I put it. And I get those emails every day, this property, that property's for sale. And it's similar to a multifamily project where it's like, yeah, I could probably get insurance for a little less. I could probably do something with management and save some money, probably push rents up, like you said, 15%. So those are, as Neil mentioned in the beginning, those are the levers you can pull with an existing facility. Whereas with a conversion, it's essentially as though you're coming into a, to a market as a ground up, but you work, but you trim, like I already talked about months and months off of that process. So yeah, so we, we're looking for a specific type of investor. They're comfortable with a certain level of risk, but as we've already talked about, it's calculated risk. We've done our due diligence. We've done our feasibility. We've gotten them environmental on the building. So we know that's squared away. So we want those investors that are willing to partner with us and come along for the ride. And we like longer term holds. We're not looking to do some quick turns and three years and get everybody out. And we look at it as a relationship and a partnership where look, we're going to try to build, we're doing our very best to build you a stream of income here that is passive, that you don't have to, you don't have to worry about. Your money's working. It's doing exactly like we told you it was going to do. You're getting a great return. There will be refinance options along the way. Every deal is a little bit different, but most of the deals we're looking at now are 10-year holds. And so it's a longer track. And we like that because we've seen what happens to these assets over 10 years, especially from the one in Arizona. We've had it 15 or 16 years now and really saw what kind of things transpire after eight, nine, 10 years and going on because your debt is fixed and your rents keep going up and that margin just gets wider and wider. It's like, I don't want to get off the ride. Still, we still have a couple of loop DVDs to do. Yeah. So I think that's, we, we've discovered that. And so that's what we want to share with investors. Got it. Can you speak about any 
unique or creative solutions that you've implemented in storage conversion projects that were facing a difficult situation, such as a property with a unique shape or limited access? Um, let's see. You look like you're trying to think. Well, we've had some situations where we had a dirty environmental on one and uh, just had to get creative with how to mitigate that. Do we do the phase two? And what did that look like? We've done two projects like that, where we got to the step phase two part of the project, environmental study, which, you know, just for the listeners, a typical phase one environmental study might be 2,500 and a phase two study is probably 12 to 14,000. If you get to the phase two stage, you're spending real money and you want to be pretty sure that it's going to move forward before putting that much money at risk. And it's still our money that we're risking, right? We don't, it's well be on the investors until we get to the finish line. But yeah, every project's a little bit different. Layouts, as we use these old buildings, there's, they've been, I think two or three of our projects right now, they've been added onto uh, over the years. One, one building is 80 years old, so it's had multiple additions. So that we just have to be very creative with how we lay out unit mix and hallways. And thankfully we've got some great architects that help. They're used to that and used to thinking creatively and how can we maximize the square footage within this footprint. So does that answer your question? Yes. I got on tangent there. Sorry. All good. How do the traditional view that people have of self-storage is of a building that's sitting in an industrial area. It may have a little office there and it's got a manager sitting behind the desk from nine to five, Monday through Friday, and they maybe have an apartment on the, they may have apartment on site where the manager lives. How have you seen that model change with the integration of technology such as keyless entry and online rental options, things like that? Oh, a ton. When we did the one in Arizona 15 years ago, it was, that was the only way to do it, right? You had to have a manager. That's just a number you have to put into the project that you're going to have to have someone sit there and hand sign every lease and walk the tenant to their unit, show them how to go through the gate or whatever. We've all seen the storage sites with the golf cart and that's what you do. You drive around and show them the, which unit do you want and all that. So that's changed tremendously over, over the past 10 years. And especially since the pandemic, because so much has gone, technology has gone to online. We use a QR code on our doors. So if our manager is out for weekends. They can easily scan the QR code. COVID trained everybody how to use QR code. So they scan it. They rent for it, takes them right to our website. They can rent online. Online rentals were not a thing when we first got in this business. And slowly it was like, somebody's going to be the first ones to do online rentals. Cause it was still a legal thing where you had to have their wet signature on the lease. And those kind of things have all evolved into email, DocuSign, what have you. And it's, it's seamless. So. It's, I think it's going to keep going that way. There's a lot of companies out there doing third-party management, contactless, or whatever you want to call it, remote management. It's all, and we're experimenting with all those different options and seeing what works for us. We have one site that has no manager on site, and then we're toying around with third-party management, and they don't use an on-site manager. So there's all, it's really however you want to design it, it is available today. So yeah, plenty of options. That's right. So can you, lost my train of thought here for a second. Let me pause for just a second. Okay. 
Can you discuss any measures that you've taken to improve the energy efficiency of a converted self-storage facility and how that's impacted the net operating income and then ultimately the value? Yeah, it depends on the state or where it's located, but there might be local, state, or federal tax incentives or credits to, for example, upgrade lighting from high-pressure sodium or, I forgot the other one, but not energy-efficient lighting, right? So up to LED lighting. And even if it's, even if there's not incentives, it's still worth the money to upgrade lighting. Typically we do all new HVAC systems, which are, I don't know how nerdy you want to get, but 14s here and up way more efficient than the old, old HVAC system. So we've been able to cut even utility costs in half or more in a lot of cases, which you know, all adds to the bottom line. So there's definitely efficiencies that we've been able to come up with that, that help the whole project. So. All right. Well, so I'm trying to get you to tell one particular story. No, you want me to do the city storage south? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just get right to it, Eric. Come on. Let's tell the city storage south story. I love this story. Oh yeah. Gosh, I'll have to, I I hope I get the numbers right. That's all right. Well, we won't hold you to it. We were, so after we did the city, the uh, conversion in, in Wilmington here, Back in 2016, there was a property that came up for sale not far from us, and we took a look at it. The utility bills were really expensive. Uh, I want to say $2,200, $2,500 a month, and they were using high-pressure sodium lights. But because they're the kind of lights that, like an old gymnasium, when you turn them on, they take, you hear this huge clunk, and then like 30 minutes before you actually get light from them, because they have to heat up the ballast and all this stuff. Well, because they take so long to turn on, the owners just left them on all the time, 24 seven. So their utility bills were 20, like I said, 22, $2,300 a month. And the building was not air conditioned. So it was hot in the summer, cold in the winter. So we, when we bought the building, the first thing we did is change all the lighting to LED. And that was a situation where we were able to get a credit from the, from Duke Energy, the power company in North Carolina. And they paid for, I think, 80%, 90% of the upfit cost through a federal tax program. So we changed all the lighting to LED, and then we added 40 tons of HVAC, air conditioning and heating, to the building. And now, even with adding all of that air conditioning and doing the LED, our bills are $800. So the bill went to about a third, and we got brand new lighting, and now it's climate controlled. So we were able to take the rents from... I think they were $79 for a 10 by 10 non-climate controlled. And I think now we're at 159 somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. Those are just, that was really a fantastic win on both sides, cutting expenses, raising rents and being able to justify the raised rents. Because even after we raised rents, we were having our tenants, we were expecting them to come in with pitchforks and torches, angry about the rent increase. And uh, all we got was compliments like, oh my gosh. I have to come here and organize my stuff. And now it's air conditioned and now it's heated. Like I don't dread coming here. Like they used to just bake in the summer in there. And so they're grateful for them to pay another 40, 50 bucks and actually get some productivity done there was huge for them. So they were really happy with that. And of course that just helped the bottom line explode. So that was a great win. So that's what we do routinely. Now we first check a, an old building. We're like, well. We know we're going to save a ton on the lighting right off the bat. 
and depending on which state, which qualify, which programs we can qualify for. But yeah, we definitely like to explore every option there because we, we set, we're trying to set them up for long, long holds, right? We want new equipment. We want trouble-free lighting. We want motion sensors on lighting. So they're not on all the time and all those kind of things all help. Well, again, I'll come back to you, Clint. Again, it comes down to, it's another one of those levers that you can pull. And when you lower, you lowered that NOI or you increase your NOI by what, $1,200. Now you divide that by a cap rate and you've not only you've increased the cash flow on that property, but you've also substantially increased the value. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So go Here's for it. Joe. Yeah. So I was going to ask, tell me about the deals that Nomad did in 2022. And obviously in 2022, we had some pretty significant shifts in interest rates as well. So tell me about what you did last year and what you guys have coming down the pipeline and expect to do in 2023. Oh, great. Yeah. So last year was our first year officially syndicating the whole year. So we were able to do five deals, two Kmarts, one Kmart in North Carolina, one in Virginia. The first Kmart is open. We opened about right at 60 days ago. So we're leasing up there, bought an existing facility, which is not something we normally do, but it was an opportunity that came to us off market and we couldn't pass it up. So we did that one, working on a grocery store in Georgia as a conversion and a soda bot soda bottling facility in Charlotte, just outside of Charlotte as well. So five deals and uh, yeah, looking to do more of the same. We've got just got another project under contract. Got a full pipeline ahead. It seems like we keep finding deals and uh, just having fun exploring. So our, the state that we're focusing on right now are North and South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and Georgia for now. We feel like there's plenty of ore to be mined in those states. And uh, yeah, interest rates are making it more challenging. Another reason we like the conversions, like we've already talked about with time frame of what it takes from closing to leasing up. And we're just trying to keep our eye on the market and the future, but we really feel like because we're in the heavy value add niche that we're able to force a lot of appreciation and add a lot of value that gives us a built in safety margin across the portfolio. So we feel good. We're ready to, we're ready to go. Yeah. Well, and that's such a great point you bring up is that forced appreciation that you're creating gives you that margin of safety that a lot of other, a lot of other asset classes have a harder time generating. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Eric, it is time to manifest it into existence. Where is Nomad headed over the next five years? Fantastic question. I wish I knew. <laughs> no, we, we, it's hard to put five years. That's a long time. I never dreamed we'd be doing this five years ago. We, we just want to keep putting one foot in front of the other, making smart choices, finding great deals. I don't know. We love, we'd love to tackle bigger projects. I'm a dreamer. So I always have big ideas. We'd love to look at a portfolio, a fund to give us more flexibility and not be so tied to deal by deal. But for now, that's what we're doing. We're happy to do it. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, we'd love the self-storage space. So I can, I can't imagine we won't, we won't be in it in some capacity, but we'll see, see where it goes. So I have one more question before we let you go. How do you, how do you like to give back? What's your favorite, what's your favorite way to give back? Well, what we, my wife has started a nonprofit theater company several years ago, 
And so that's something that actually we all do together as a family. I'm in the plays, my son's in the plays, all my kids are in at some point, my wife directs, and we have anywhere from 40 to 60 other kids, teenagers, adults that are in theater productions. We love it. It's a great thing that we do. And a lot of people are like, well, theater, that's kind of weird or whatever, but we, we've been able to see kids come out of their shells. It's really a public speaking class. It is builds confidence in kids. We've seen kids that couldn't even stand in front of a group and say their name, become stars on the stage and the pride that they feel going through that. And it's fantastic. So that's what we do. We're both involved in that. And a lot of income that we generate, we put back into that. And it's, it's really a cool thing. Love it. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our audience wants to reach out to you and find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to do that? 100%. Yeah. The email is great. Eric, E-R-I-K, Norwegian spelling. E-R-I-K at nomadcapital.us is my email or cell phone 910-431-3855. Happy to chat about storage and life and investing and whatever with anybody. Yeah. Cell phone or email is the easiest. And or if you're in Wilmington, pop by for a beer. All right. Love it, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode, leave a comment down below, or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose. 